Straw Hut Media. When people say mean or ignorant things to you or about you, you probably respond like most people. You get angry. It's the natural reaction. But Rain Dove doesn't, and it's glorious. Rain is a model who models both men's and women's products, and since building their platform, they've become a sort of unofficial queer Dear Abby, opening up their DMs to everyone from young queer folks to angry non-allies, answering vitriol with humor and compassion, and giving really solid advice all along the way. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. My name is Rain Dove, Rain like from the sky, Dove like the bird. Uh, my identity is that I am I, and I am happy to be here. Rain Dove's gender and sexual orientation isn't at the forefront of their identity. You can think of Rain Dove as non-binary or gender fluid, maybe even gender non-conforming. I am a very tall person originating from the great state of Vermont, known for Ben and Jerry's, Bernie Sanders, um, and uh, one of the first states to legalize a, a queer marriage instead of a civil union, which is pretty cool. As a model, Rain has worked with big name brands like Calvin Klein, Louboutin, and Nike. But more importantly, Rain uses their platform to engage in tough conversations and to try to make the world a safer and more inclusive place. My belief is that everyone has the ability to shift or change. I do a lot of work in that realm. It's not always popular with people because it's a lot easier, I think, to be angry and people should be angry. They have the right to their anger. Um, in these times, people are so angry <laughs> uh, and they have, they're entitled to that, <laughs> to that rage. Um, but my work is about finding mediation and trying to bring people who have gone too far to one side back to the middle so they can sit at the table and eat with us at the end of the day, no matter what their beliefs are. What I know about your modeling career is that you have done everything from menswear to wedding dresses. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Yeah. Um, so because of my identity, I think I was one of the first models in the world ever to model professionally both men's and women's um, and be signed as both a male and a female on both boards. Um, I get to do both realms of work, but that also limits the scope because um, I'm a very political person by identity. So people are afraid that by having me in their ads, it might be a political statement. But at the same time, unlike other models, I get to do everything and anything as all people should. Um, and I get to uh, talk to people about how to break the bonds that fabric has uh, imprisoned us in. My guess is you didn't intend to be like, I'm going to be a non-binary model where I get to do a very fluid range of, of, you know, modeling campaigns. Can you talk a little bit of how, how it all happened? Yeah, I didn't want to be a model. I was super transient. Um, I was going through a really, I think, a typical um, queer kid kind of experience where I was couch surfing and just not really in a great space um, with myself and mental health. And I was doing a lot of gig work on Craigslist. And um, I really loved the entry 
entertainment industry, but it always seemed like it was for those people, you know, as if there was a different species of human that becomes an actor or a model or someone who gets to create the art that we see in the world. Um, but I had a friend who was a model for DKNY and I lost a bet to her um, while having drinks and crying about a breakup. And uh, because I lost that bet, uh, she sent me to a casting call for a charity show for Calvin Klein in San Francisco. And when I went, they told me I was there on the wrong day. Now, I, I looked around and I was like, oh, they must do this by hair color because all the models there were just had light colored hair and long hair. And I was like, of course, they don't want the hair to clash with the outfits. Um, they said, you're here on the wrong day. Come back tomorrow. Tomorrow's your day. I come back the next day. It's a men's casting call. It wasn't a big deal to me because I get perceived as a male all the time. Um, I didn't have language around my identity. So I just kind of went with things. Um, and I got cast in the show. When Rain Dove showed up on the day of the show, the organizers handed them a pair of men's underwear and said, go get changed. The show was a charity runway event featuring Calvin Klein underwear. And I knew I had two choices in that moment as somebody with double Ds. Uh, number one, I could say, excuse me, there are some things in my body that might not go along with the intended marketing message that you have for this particular garment. Thank you so much, sir, and farewell. Um, or B, I could just make my friend as miserable as possible. I did not want to be a professional model, so I had nothing to lose, you know? Um, and I did, I, I just went into the changing room, got into this underwear, and I burst out um, in the middle of the show, literally just shouldered past other models, went not even during my time, made some kind of like big political gesture, marched down the runway, just in underwear, completely topless, double Ds going side to side. The casting director was at the end of the runway show like, <clears throat> I came back at, uh, off the runway um, and I left. Raindove says that night they had a good laugh about it, slept on a friend's couch and thought that would be the end of that. And then before you know it, people were hitting me up and saying, hey, um, that was so bold. It was so cool. Um, would you be willing to walk for me? And I, I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it. I was like, are you kidding me? Modeling is such a horrible industry. People don't eat. People are rude to each other. It's exclusionary. It's bad for the environment. It's antithetical to everything I am and everything I want to be. I do not want to join in this industry. But then somebody said, hey, look, I'm doing this eco-friendly San Francisco fashion thing. I'll pay you $500 to be in. And I was like, $500? I mean, I could donate some of that money to something. And so I literally, I think I still had the email I should forward it to. It's very funny. The first time I ever got paid for a modeling job, I wrote to them. I said, I don't know if you're going to want the photos that you're going to get from this, but sure, I'll do it. It was during that shoot, Raindove says, they started to see the potential for real change in modeling. I realized that fashion has been a lot more revolutionary and groundbreaking than we give it credit for. And I realized that like there's a possibility in this industry to redistribute wealth in another direction and encourage people to not just break the bonds of their own identities, but also to break the bonds of their wallet. Um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to give this, this fashion thing seems to be doing something. Um, I'm going to give it a shot, see where it takes me. And um, I'll let the universe decide if I fail at it, I, you know, I'll go join some nonprofit. And if it does well, then it's where I'm meant to be. And I made one promise to myself, which is to never compromise, to never sell out and to always speak my mind, never to like filter just because it's not profitable. And surprisingly, it has been the best move I've ever made in my life is to just be very vocal. 
A big part of it, Raindove says, was timing. They made their break into the modeling world at a time when brands were becoming more and more focused on selling stories rather than looks. I happened to come in at the right time where the world was ready for not just models, but movements and voices. But when I first came in, it was really difficult. I had a really tough idea of what the industry was. I was like, these are exclusionary people who don't care about anyone other than themselves. People are wrapped up in their own narcissism. Like it's a wasteful industry. It's a toxic industry and it's teaching people toxic ideologies. Um, and at the same time, I was like, if you can infiltrate that and break that, and change it. Imagine how much good that can do. Once you realize that, were you then motivated to like, I'm going to infiltrate this shit? Absolutely. Like um, my, my primary goal when I first went into it was like, this shit needs to change. And if I have the opportunity to do it, then I'm going to give it a shot. And it only was because like the first few things I did were so successful in the sense that they really upset people. I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to upset people and I want to talk to them and I want to heal and I want to like change things. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, that's, a, it's exactly where I need to be. It's exactly what I need to do. I need to be in this space telling people to wake up, you know? Raindove moved to New York City and was signed to both the men's and women's board at an agency within the first year. Despite that immediate success, they struggled. I, I didn't realize how abusive the industry was. I didn't realize how um, poorly models were paid. We have this idea that models make thousands and thousands of dollars on the runways. Most models are working for trade for clothing, unless you're a big name. Eventually, Raindove managed to create a name for themselves. But when they started out, like all the other models out there, they were working for free. My first year, I did a show for Bikala. I stood on a box while they played Lady Gaga music and I wore nipple tassels and a, and a light up dildo around my neck and a pair of shorts for this show. And I put that in heavy quotes. Um, and they paid me by giving me the shorts. <laughs> and no. Yeah, so the first year I was Ugh. so broke. Everything was just absolute crap. Um, and I didn't book anything because I was too political to be commercial, you know, and I was too political to do anything other than high fashion in which ironically high fashion pays absolutely nothing. One of my first shoots for Italian Vogue, I didn't get paid anything. In fact, I had to pay the photographer <laughs> for, because it was a part of like a headshot series I was doing. He just happened to get it in Italian Vogue. So the first year was like, Crap, if anyone, I only say that because there's a lot of people who might listen to this and say, I want to get into that industry. And I'll tell you, have a side job when you start out. <laughs> you need it. No kidding. Modeling is very binary, right? Like, or at least historically it is, right? You have men's, you have women's. Mm -hmm. How did that work for you? Hmm. Well, when I first came into the industry, it was um, about a year or so before Andrea Pejic came out. And um, Andrea Pejic was dropped from her agency for being trans. Andreja Pejic is a Bosnian-Australian model who spent a few years modeling both masculine and feminine clothing before coming out as trans. Since then, she became the first openly trans model profiled by Vogue in 2015, and the first trans woman to sign a cosmetics contract. She was also the first trans woman on the cover of GQ. Needless to say, despite the initial backlash, Andreja Pejic made a comeback. She slays. Raindove, on the other hand, didn't identify as trans. They were fluid. And when Raindove entered into that New York fashion scene, they said people didn't expect much of a career to take shape. I had to really fight for everything. And so when I first went into 
the professional industry in New York City, we have this thing where it's like casting week and casting week is really brutal. It's a bunch of people, you'll see them like models running around like some kind of David Attenborough, like nature special. And you can always tell it's a model because they have a big binder in front of them with their portfolio in it. Raindove described it like this. You go to a casting, you stand in line for hours, you get scrutinized by the casting directors who feel very emboldened to say what they feel when they feel it. You do a walk for them back and forth, and then you leave. When they were first starting out, Raindove says that their agency didn't send them out to major castings out of fear. So they sent me to a bunch of fringe shows and indie shows, but they didn't send me to anything big. I had to go to other models and be like, hey, I'll trade you this casting for this. It was like trading Yu-Gi-Oh cards, but it was trading information. And I would just go with, um, I would go to castings I wasn't even asked to go to, and I would just walk in them. But women's castings are brutal, Raindove says. Women's castings are really tough. You have to learn how to walk in high heels. My boobs are huge. I'm, it's tough for me to like carry them. Um, and so like uh, women's castings were, um, were probably the hardest thing for me to do, even though I was born by societal standards female. Other models were cruel, and the casting directors were next level. And they would just tell you, like, you're too fat, you're too ugly, upper lip stash. They'd say, you're brave, but you're not beautiful. Uh, uh, so brutal. Anyway, tangent. But, that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a brutal industry to go into. The men's casting were a bit more laid back. Typically, Raindove says men's modeling gigs pay about half what women's gigs pay. But Raindove has the perfect measurements for most male modeling gigs, which made them more likely to get booked. So they went for those too. All men's castings, pretty much, you have to take your shirt off. You have to walk topless back and forth and then come out. So I would take my shirt off. I'd walk out completely topless. The people are always like, mm, <laughs> they were always like sh shocked, yeah. but also sometimes impressed. Because um, you were like, I'm, free the nipple. Free the nipple, yeah. And I'm freeing it in this job interview. I am freeing the nipple for work. I actually got one <laughs> job um, because I went and I did that. And this person was like, Do we need to call? Are you like, is this legal? And I go, Yes, it is. Law of New York City says we're allowed to be topless. And <laughs> they looked it up and they were like, Interesting, and they booked me, which is funny. One time, Raindove says, they booked a Marc Jacobs runway show. And Marc Jacobs was doing all kinds of really cool, diverse and intersectional stuff, but they were doing a specific menswear show. And they asked me to identify as um, trans, as a trans man, um, because they felt like it would be too weird if I was in the changing room with other men. Like they said, we just need something to reassure some of our other talent who might be more conservative. And I dropped the show because I was like, I couldn't, it's not my identity. When we come back, the power of thick skin and a light touch. Welcome back. As Raindove worked their way through the modeling world, they had to deal with a lot of negativity, but those close-minded mentalities never managed to hold them back. I went into the industry with a self-righteous mentality of like, I'm here to fuck shit up. 
And so anytime somebody rejected me, I'm like, this is a part of my story. And this is a part of a story that's important because it shows me that I'm here to change things because obviously things need to change. Um, and these people reaffirm it. So whenever somebody put me down, it was like, it was, I just knew they were wrong. I don't know, I just had that feeling, you know? Raindove says it got harder as they settled into their career. People got even harsher. If you thought that they couldn't get any worse, they get worse because they're like, so you're on a pedestal. Why do you deserve to be there? Because you are insult, 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 all of these bullet points, you know? Um, and you have to defend your position. You have to defend your space. And um, I think the most difficult thing about being in this industry wasn't really comments about my body because I don't really care. Like I get laid, I have a good time, I have a good life, like I do my thing, like I, I'm okay being alone and I'm okay with being with people, like I'm resolved. Um, but the toughest thing was actually what happened when I blew up. In April of 2015, BuzzFeed posted an article titled, 13 Reasons Rain Dove is the Androgynous Model of Our Dreams. It went viral. And after that, um, a lot of people started asking me to be a spokesperson for the LGBTQ community, but I wasn't ready at the time. And I've never gotten tougher critics than our own community. Um, and it wasn't, and, and they weren't tough in the same way that like a casting director was tough, where they just talk, call you fat and ugly and stupid. Um, it was tough because I wanted to do right by our community so badly. And I w didn't feel like I was equipped with the right language because I grew up in a really conservative environment and I, I wasn't up on the jargon or the words. I wasn't ready for the microphone. I also was I had spent so much time homeless before I got into the industry that I wasn't, um, I was still working through a lot of queer trauma and things like that. Um, and I think that I had a really tough time because I really wanted to please everybody and make everyone proud that I was a representative of the community, but I wasn't I wasn't ready for it. So whenever a queer person told me I wasn't doing enough or I wasn't good enough, or they said they were disappointed because I worked with this brand and this brand was upsetting to the community in a kind of way, that always really stabbed my heart more than, any, more than anything um, because it's our family and it's hard to be judged by your family. A few years later, when Rain Dove went viral again, they were way more equipped to be an advocate. A while ago, I was doing a college talk, and whenever I travel to any part of the country or any part of the world, I always put out a thing saying, hey, I'm in your city or town. I'm willing to meet with you. Um, usually, I do like group meetups, and sometimes I can do one-on-ones. Raindove had gone to meet with a young person and their parent to talk. Um, but when I went to go visit with them, I went to go use the restroom and it was really upsetting to a person who was in the restroom and she just was, I think, really protective over a kid and maybe I scared her because I was in a hurry. So, I mean, I was moving and she pepper sprayed, <laughs> she pepper sprayed me. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that this happens to me a lot, but I know that I definitely can say I get um, bathroom anxiety. A lot of people, I think, who are not conformist um, in their aesthetic, re regardless of if it's a gender nonconformity, sometimes it's even just being, you know, whether you have a goth presentation or a super feminine presentation, whatever that nonconformity is, it can be a really scary experience going into the bathroom because it's such a, it's in a closed place. There's usually no cameras, there's no accountability, and it's, um, it's scary. What's really interesting about that, though, is that if I remember right, you were using the restroom that would be 
I guess considered by society. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been deemed appropriate for me. But, you know, I'm used to people getting upset. And I've I have had people hit me with purses. I've had, um, you know, I've had an, I had an incident that happened in Vegas a long time ago where, um, way before my modeling career, where um, I had a security guard take me out of the restroom very forcefully. Another experience in Camden, London, where somebody came in while I had my pants down, reached under the door, the security guard reached under the door, and like, then was like, oh, <laughs> and then closed the door and like left. Um, but I think it's because I'm such a big person and people think I might be a threat and I don't know um, this. But this happened very quickly. I went into the restroom and she just screamed like she was ready and she just pulled out a little thing, like one of those little things of mace and just hit me kind of. Mo- like not directly in the eyes, but like nice clatter around my face. I'm like, motherfucker, that hurts. Meanwhile, <laughs> um, you know, she just like goes to report this whole situation. I've got to keep booking. I've got to keep moving. I don't really think this is like, I mean, it's a big deal. She pepper sprayed like, you. Yeah. Like but, it's a huge yeah, deal. It's a huge deal. But you know, in my mind, here's the deal. I choose to wear what I wear. And I knew I was wearing something that society might deem to be masculine. I'm not saying that I deserved it or anything, but I'm in a very conservative state. I'm going into the restroom um, in a place where I know that there's going to be parents and other people who have younger individuals in their lives. Um, I know that I'm not the typical aesthetic. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm just saying I've come to, after having a lot of these incidents occur, I just understand that in that moment she was being brave and I'm not saying that anyone should be justified for pepper spraying anyone, but I don't know her trauma. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if maybe she's been sexually assaulted. I don't know if maybe her child's been attacked. I don't know what goes on in people's lives. I, all I see is that this person protected themselves against what they thought was a six foot two muscular threat bullying themselves into the restroom. What needs to change is the perception of what some, like, you know, of what a male or a female can look like. What needs to change is we need to have public restrooms that are available to anyone to use that are single stall use. And then we need to have like special toilets for changing rooms, uh, disabled individuals and uh, individuals who maybe have anxieties or preferences to you know, not be in a crowded area with other people that have their genitals out, you know, taking a shit or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, I don't know. In that moment, I don't know. If you, if you ever hang out with me, you'll know that this is just the way that I move. I'm a very much in the now person. I just compartmentalized it and I moved on. And then later on, she contacted me. She was like really mad. She hit me up and she's like, I'm the person like, yeah, um, that maced you in the restroom. I'd do it again. And we had to have this whole conversation kind of breaking this down. If you go into Rain Dove's Instagram, you can actually read that conversation. You can read all kinds of conversations that Rain Dove has had. People come at them pretty aggressively. And it's actually kind of mind blowing, the grace with which Rain Dove responds. It's inspiring. So a lot of my work is about mediation and having conversations with people. I do it in all forms. I do it on Zoom. I'll do it on person. I'll do it in text, Facebook, Instagram. Um, And one of the difficult things is occasionally I'll share these, but I have to choose whether I out them or not. One of the problems I've found in the past is that by sharing the handles of the people that I communicate with, the rest of um, no matter if that person turns around and has a positive experience and it's like, oh, wow, trans people are valid. It doesn't matter. People are so mad that the person even like, you know, invalidated the community that they hop on them and they send them abuse. And 
that abuse tends to make that person feel threatened and go backwards and it undoes all the work that I do. Raindove says that was a particularly difficult task with the mace incident. Unfortunately, with the community, um, people were like calling for this person to like lose her job. They were calling for like this person to like, um, like they're like, I'm gonna have a conversation. Where does she live? And in, in our community, there's a lot of doxing. So if somebody's abusive, people find their address, they put it out, and then that person gets harassed. Um, for like the past well, few years um, since that incident occurred, um, I found myself like having to shield <laughs> This ironically, it's very ironic because in the beginning, it's like she attacked me, but right now I'm having to like protect this person's, you know, protect this person's existence online. Um, and uh, it's been, it's been really sweet because um, for the past like two years since the thing happened, um, every year on the anniversary of the message, the first message she sent me, both years she sent a message and just said, thank you very much for not, um, you know, outing me. Thank you very much for like not um, doxing me. Um, and I just find it really, really funny that like uh, the tables have turned in such a different way. Like the, the fear has changed. I don't know. It's a random thought I have in my head. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize I was thinking about that until just now. <laughs> Every interaction that I have seen on your social media where you address someone's issues, you always take the higher road, you know? And I'm sure that she thought like when she maced you, the mace is nothing compared to the internet. Like the internet will come for you. It will and end make your life it will end hell. your job. It will end everything. You will never work again. Like the internet is intense and people's rage is valid. It's so valid. Like um, sometimes rage is the higher road because sometimes you have to have it even if you don't want it in order to be able to be motivated to do things. So I don't want to like put people down who have rage, but I do find that we are having a difficult time allowing for communication um, with those that enrage us and compartmentalizing our feelings to allow healers to come through. It's like people are angry and what we need on the front lines are medics and we need people to convert and, and to change and to shift other people. Um, but we're not allowing that to happen. We just want them all to die and go away, <laughs> you know, or magically shift. But a lot of people have been brainwashed for decades into thinking the way that they do. And, um, you know, they need, they need someone to walk them through themselves in order for them to shift. Because the only way people change is if they change themselves. Like no one can change you for you, that you have to want to do it. And it's really hard to want to do that when you're faced at, um, with, a, with a mob of angry people. I think one of the most difficult things about the the work that I do is it, it is very like quiet work, you know? <laughs> you're like, you're constantly talking to people having the same, I wouldn't say the same conversations. I mean, they're completely worth it. I, this is what I do for a living and I love it. Um, but I don't get paid to do it. It's what I do because I believe in it. And the reason I believe in doing this work of mediation is because I feel like the community has given me a platform and I'm very grateful for that platform. Um, if and at the same time, because they've given me a platform, I am obligated to them to do the best by them that I possibly can do. Self-righteously, I can scream at somebody and tell them that they are a little fuckwad who doesn't deserve to live. But that will make me feel good in the moment. But who knows who that 
person that I just yelled at will go home to? Who knows who they're going to experience? I may have gotten mine as far as revenge, but they will get theirs too, and it can impact people. I feel like being angry as a person with a platform is a privilege because I have the right to be angry, and I just don't really feel like I feel like I can be angry but not act on it in the way that in a, in a volatile way um, because I have the privilege of not having to deal with these people in person. I have the privilege of now being able to afford protection. I can afford a nice place to be. I can afford food, shelter, and water. But I don't know if all the people that that person's going to encounter in their life will be able to. Um, so I feel like it is my obligation and, and my duty because of the platform given to me by the community to try my best to make the community a safer place for people to be. When we come back, the journey that led Raindove to understand their role as a mediator. Welcome back. Even though now, Raindove is insanely well-spoken when confronting non-allies. Growing up in Vermont, there was no baseline for talking about LGBTQ issues. You think of Vermont as being a very liberal place, but it actually is quite conservative in its rural communities. Um, I grew up in a community that didn't really care about what you wore. We cared about how you showed up in the work that you did. And at the same time, it was a world that really was anti-LGBTQ. And when I came out to my family um, as being a person who just loves who they love, um, they didn't take it very well. Um, my mother was like, how dare you? <laughs> like, don't tell my, uh, don't tell your grandparents, don't tell your great grandparents, they're gonna have a heart attack, they're too old to understand, how could you do this to me and my bad parent? My father was like, whatever, just don't bring them home. And if you do bring someone home, um, just make sure that, my father was very racist. And he said that as long as I don't bring home a black person, um, the first person I dated was black, <laughs> so we didn't get off on a very strong foot. Raindove says their parents never kicked them out of the house. Instead, Raindove made the decision to leave. I knew I had to make a choice, which was choose to live the life they loved for me or choose to um, live the life I love for myself but not be a burden on them. And um, I decided I'm going to go and just, I need to figure this out because I'm never going to be happy unless I know the answers. So I went on a journey across the country to find out who I was and what I needed as a person. So Rain left Vermont and was determined not to lean on their parents for money or support. But unfortunately, as a young queer person, I didn't have any credit. I didn't have a job history. The only work experience Rain Dove had was manual labor. And so I went out to Colorado. I worked in a conservation corps called the Rocky Mountain Youth Corps. From there, rain kept moving. Then I went to San Francisco, home of the queer, um, to try to figure out who I was, fell in love a few times, got broken up with a few times, broke up with some people a few times. With no credit and no cosigner, getting an apartment was out of the question. It was really hard to get a job. I basically had to fake resumes in order to to get someone to hire me. You know, I think everyone at my age at that time was like, fake it till you make it. Cause you get into San Francisco and New York City and they're like, you have to have five years of previous experience to be a server at like this restaurant. <laughs> like it's, it's a tough, it was tough. And um, 
I'm really proud that I lived. Um, I don't know how, <laughs> but I went out there with my car and um, I had like this beat up Honda Accord with the window smashed out, I got smashed out in Colorado. And um, I slept in my car every night. Um, and sometimes I dated people just to have a place to be. And I know that's not right, but it's where I was at that time time I was just in the I need to get by kind of like phase I took odd jobs off from Craigslist and I um you know occasionally I would get like a job and it would only last for like a month or two because I was homeless and I smelled bad and I had hygiene issues and people didn't want to have me working at their place for too long because I didn't clean up my act literally then Raindove's car got towed while they were sleeping inside and then things got even worse I got to this place in my life where I was sleeping in the backyards of homes that had been foreclosed on and they were just like for sale. And um, I found it was a lot safer than sleeping on the street um, with like around other people. And I woke up one morning to this uh, sprinkler going off. Uh, and I normally, you, you're supposed to wrap the sprinklers with saran wrap so you don't get sprayed in the morning, but I didn't wrap a sprinkler with saran wrap and it, sp it was spraying me like, <laughs> I mean, literally like right in like the face chest area. I woke up and I was ah, oh, and I'm freezing cold and I don't have any place to go. It's like five o'clock in the morning and Starbucks is closed and I'm standing outside of like this place and I'm realizing that like, it was in that moment that I realized no one's coming. There's no help. There's no one here. No one's gonna save you. And I realized I'd been waiting I've been waiting for someone to like rescue me and any person I dated, I was hoping that they were going to rescue me. Um, I put that kind of responsibility on them. And that's a really common thing that happens in the queer community. And in that moment, when I realized no one was coming, I realized I got to, I got to move. I got to breathe. I got to fight. I got to make a choice right here and now because there were like whole days that went by where I had nothing um of a memory I, I literally days went by where nothing happened i don't have any clue what happened I, I didn't do drugs i wasn't drinking at the time they're just literally days that were so empty with nothingness that they then became nothingness in my mind and that's like that that was the thing that changed my life that that moment like realizing that nobody else was coming and deciding making a very very strong pivotal decision that I was going to rescue myself and I was going to do whatever it took to get on my feet and to be somebody that I was proud to be with and be around. And, um, you know, I was a crazy, you know, bit of a con artist for a long time as a reflection of loss of self-worth and, um, you know, that homeless, having that homeless experience and, and being in such a survival space, it took me years of therapy to unwind, like the fact that you can have something without taking it, that people will love you and you don't have to do any, like you do have to do things for love, but like that, like love can be just given and it doesn't have to be stolen. You know, um, it took me a long time to realize that I deserve to have a roof over my head, um, or that money is, um, it's just a, a concept. Um, it's not something I have to be enslaved by. Um, and yeah, I mean, on that day, I turned my life around. I literally went um, door to door to everyone's, like people's homes on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Berkeley. I knocked door to door and I said, hey, I'm on the street. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm not asking for money as a handout, but can I trim that bush? Can I mow that lawn? Can I do this thing? And by the end of the day, I had enough money to stay in a hostel. 
And um, I worked my way up and eventually got to a space where um, I was able to, uh, you know, start doing social activities. I had a roof over my head and that, um, I mean, I was still kind of couch surfing and stuff, but I was in a space where I could go out with like my friend, have some drinks, lose a bet, <laughs> you know, that kind of- Become got, a supermodel. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, did, it didn't like, I didn't make like thousands you know, overnight when I thought of that, but it just, I stop. I guess, I just, I guess I stopped waiting for other people to be the solution. And I think a lot of times in our community, we're so hurt that we keep waiting for someone to hold us the way that we, our parents should have, or the way that we should have. And we keep having other people try to compensate for that emptiness and that space. And it's really sad, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's such a harsh reality when you said, like, no one is coming. Is that something that you would give as advice to someone who was experiencing some of the things or all of the things that you've experienced? Because it sounds harsh, but it's also very, like, practical. Um, I would tell people sometimes that no one is coming. That's a hard thing to say, though. See, everyone has a different thing that motivates them to move, to shift, to breathe. Sometimes if someone were to hear no one's coming, they'd take their life. If we were in a grocery store and it were you and me and like 50 other people that we've never met before, they're all in this grocery store. We're all in line to check out the long ass line and I fall to the ground and I'm screaming and I'm in pain. Would you care? Me? Yes. Can you guarantee that anyone else would care in that grocery store? No. Can you guarantee that everyone else would care in that grocery store? No. That's because you are the most reliable source for good to prevail on this planet. The only person that you can guarantee to care, the only person you can guarantee to love, the only person you can guarantee to give a fuck. And that's why you're worth something. That's why you're valuable. That's why you're important. That's why you're special. Because you are the only guarantee for good to exist. That was a motivation for me. It's what motivates my whole work is knowing that like I may not have much to give but I can give love and space and time I'm not a perfect person and at the same time I am I've made a lot of poor choices and I've made mistakes but I've also made enough momentum in my life that I chosen to live and that's a big thing and um, I, what I can give to people if it's not money and it's not a platform I can give people love and that's something that's not guaranteed for anyone else to get. And I know what it's like not to get it. It's empty. It's lonely. It's cold. It takes out the whole point of even being a being, you know. We've gotten into a really great space of telling people that it's okay to not be okay. And I think that is important. But at some point, it's not a but. And at some point, we also have to give people permission to breathe, to choose, to move past themselves in that moment and not to sit in it because i see people sitting in their trauma for decades not moving past it because their trauma is familiar and it's comforting but their trauma becomes other people's trauma as they enter into abusive patterns and um in cycles that hurt the people around them I really think that what we need to do is have a mental health movement in our community. And we also need to have a sit down and say, it's okay to cry. Also, it's okay to move on.
Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Are you working on any projects that you'd like to mention? There are a couple of things. Okay. All right. Number one, may I introduce you to my amazing partner, Kelsey Ellison. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. I've seen, I know who you are because I've seen you in the videos. Um, okay. So one project that we have coming up, um, that is like the reason I brought her in here is because it is not about this project is not about me at all, but I'm executive producing that project. Um, but there's a a film that is coming out called a darker shade of magic. It's by VE Schwab, an incredible queer author, um, who's getting all kinds of awards and things like that right now. Um, and they haven't cast it yet. And it's adapted from a book. It's yeah. adapted from a book. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. V.E. Schwab, author, wrote the book. Book was book inspired a film. Film is coming out. And the main character of that um, book, her name is Lila Bard. Well, one of the main characters. Her name is Lila Bard. She's got a glass eye. She is a pirate. And she's queer. And she's awesome. And she not only looks exactly like my partner, but my partner also has a glass eye and the same eye. Mm-hmm. And they look exactly alike. So what you're saying is... She needs to play the pirate. Yes. And or at least have a chance to like be seen as like audition as a character. Like, yes. you know. Just just get a shot for an audition. Yeah. What are we working on, might you ask? Gasp. Um, so we've decided this is a, on our line of don't wait for people to discover you fucking discover yourself. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we've cast in a, a completely queer cast of trans, bi, pansexual, like everybody's queer on the whole cast, right? Yeah, queer and trans. Amazing. Um, and we made a fake movie trailer that looks fucking real. Like you, you're going to be it's like, the what? It's, it looks cool. It's the most. Okay, you're going to have to send it. Audition tip, anyone who's done <laughs> special effects we got them explosions psh, sure do locations oh yeah we didn't pay for them but they are expensive <laughs> um even the costumes are like handmade anyway um we are going to be putting out this uh fake trailer and the author ve schwab has been communicating with us and she's very supportive whenever we put out content she's always sharing it on her own page which is a great sign our goal is just to get people to realize that um being queer or trans doesn't if you cast a queer or trans actor they it doesn't have to be a queer or trans role story yeah. you know story, like right yeah. i have to look queer or trans you can just fucking make a movie but anyway it's a very elaborate audition tape that just goes out <laughs> and um essentially i'm trying to champion for her to get a shot at this role because it's we need to cast disabled queer people and we don't we keep on fu- we're, like i don't want them to cast fucking zendaya to play this right. role and have her have a fake glass eye because it's an appropriation of a disabled experience and you got an actual disabled actor who looks like the character has the same disability and you didn't even give him a chance how dare you sorry i'll stop (laughs) totally totally it grew into something more though it started off as like hey let's just do like a little audition fake trailer for me but then it's actually turned into like a bigger message as, as we said like we didn't um expect it to like grow into like this big of a project but then yeah casting other queer people and other disabled people and other people um that needed a chance to like be um a role that they haven't been before it just grew into that and it just shows you that like any anyone can do anything 
I have uh, I have another thing coming out um, this uh, upcoming month. Essentially, uh, we we love, of course, um, the happiest season. Very important. That's that so good. Made a lesbian film. We love that, and we on a mainstream platform. Revolutionary, evolutionary. I'm not going to knock it too much. I will say one of the problems is that there are no people of color really in the show that are main characters. Everybody's skinny, able-bodied, and the problem happens to be that the person hasn't come out to their parents. Um, about their identity, which is a trope that should never really go away because it's always going to be a problem until we really fix systemic stuff. However, we're like, we need something that is not a, that shows queer people having a holiday thing that's not about that. So this upcoming um, month from the uh, 16th to the 25th, um, we're basically releasing 12 uh, videos, one on each day, except, well, there's book in this, but what, but essentially one piece of content a day uh, up until Christmas. And um, it is a short holiday film about Santa's son, who happens to be a trans man. And um, he basically has to find love um, before Christmas Eve, aka in three days, or else he will lose the ability to love forever um, as an immortal individual. Um, <laughs> Obviously, he has to find love in this time of COVID, and so it really shows like social distance dating, and also as a person who's never dated before, he doesn't know what he's into. So, like every single day is a different intersectionality of our community, different identities, different aesthetics. It's shot very TikTok style, so it's very silly and just kind of like it's edits. But the goal is just to give people something fun for the holidays that's not serious. Nobody fucking cries at all in this film. No no crying, no ha doesn't happen. No sadness. Yes, and no one's identity is ever the issue. There's no obstacle or even conversation about people's um, identities being a problem. Um, anyway, it comes to my Instagram this month. Please go and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Pride, and on Facebook, at Pride Podcast. You can follow me, at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. I was so surprised. Actually, I think you liked one of my photos and then you followed me and I was immediately like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like it's rain dove. What?